Second and 26 is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Did you know SEC football ticket prices tend to drop right before the game starts? GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, then shows you all the best last-minute deals, with prices up to 60% off. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the GameTime app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. Checking it out is a breeze on the GameTime app. Once you've pinpointed the seats you want, simply click the listing and check out. It's that simple. Use the GameTime two-step checkout system next time you're looking for great deals on tickets. So head to the App Store or Play Store now to download GameTime and score awesome deals on last-minute tickets. Welcome back to Second and 26, your dedicated Alabama podcast here on The Athletic, the free version. So hopefully everyone's enjoying it and you've taken advantage of uh, the seven-day free trial there from The Athletic. So I'm Aaron Suttles, your Alabama beat writer for The Athletic. You can catch me on WJOX 94.5 every Monday through Friday from 10 to 2 when you're in the Birmingham market. Hope that you do. Uh, we've got a lot to get done on this show. Alabama, obviously, in its second and final bye week of the season off of a 48-7, to just total dismantling of a way, 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 way overmatched Arkansas team. And, uh, of course, we know what's coming in two weeks, but we got plenty of time to get there. So before we turn the page, really, let's let's sort of look back at what happened and why it may or may not be significant going forward. And that involves the offense and, and the defense. And that will inform us maybe a little more as we get in later in the week and into next week um, before we really, really start digging in deep to that game of the century part two with now number one LSU and number two Alabama. Uh, yeah, you heard that right. Uh, LSU jumps Alabama. They're up by a couple of points there. Um, in the AP poll, but no worries. It doesn't really matter. In fact, most of the feedback that I've seen via social media, the fans are kind of liking it. The fact that someone else can wear that that bullseye around their neck for the next couple of weeks and let uh, let LSU deal with the, uh, the sort of rat poison day-to-day that Nick Saban is so fond of talking about. Of course, uh, this was the first game that uh, – that redshirt sophomore Mac Jones started. And we wondered, it was bandied about, it was debated, it was oft asked, what would the Alabama offense look like with Mac Jones pulling the trigger rather than Tua Tonga-Valoa? And I thought Steve Sarkeesian did a really nice job on this, on the at least to start the game off. Um... You got a new quarterback. Um, it's a it's a big environment, and listen, we we all I, I told you they were Arkansas was over overmatched. There was no real chance Alabama was ever going to lose this. Alabama could have lined up and ran the ball sixty five times, and they were going to win this football game. Um, the only touchdown that Arkansas got was because Ben Davis, yes, that Ben Davis, the one that you guys are so fond of asking me about, 
uh, lined up in the neutral zone. So he lined up offsides, uh, extended an Arkansas drive. They go down and get a touchdown. But other than that, Arkansas didn't really do much of anything. So I thought that Steve Sarkeesian had a really good plan to sort of allow his quarterback to get into the rhythm of the game, not not come out and, and put the game all on his shoulders. So um, he comes out, you know, Arkansas gets the ball first. They don't really do much with it. And then Alabama goes on a 14-play, 69-yard drive, in which they use six minutes and 27 seconds. Uh, v- very much different than an Alabama drive looks under to a Tonga Valoa. One, I'd have to look. That might be the longest drive of the season from Alabama. 14 plays, I'd have to go back. Maybe, maybe there's been one longer, but I I can't really remember one. Uh, it, it's one of the longest time-wise drives that they had this season. And so, you know, we're used to seeing four or five plays uh, for 69 yards, but that wasn't the case here. And I want to highlight a couple of things that I liked what Sark did in this particular game, because as I mentioned, he didn't, he didn't ask Mac Jones to come out and, and do anything that would make him overly concerned. He, he basically asked him to be himself and to, Hey, you've got a lot of really talented players around you. Let's utilize those guys. Shocking, right? Uh, that, that you would want to get the best uh, the, the the ball to the best players on your team. That's what Sarkeesian did, and and this is what he did on the first draft. So as I mentioned, it was fourteen plays. Here here are a sampling of those plays. The kind of talks that kind of illustrates what I'm what I'm talking about when I say um, he really eased Mac into the game. So of those fourteen plays, five of them were runs. So Najee Harris carried it four times. Brian Robinson came in ran it once. Uh, two of those plays were what we would describe as either pop passes or jet sweeps. You know, the receiver comes in motion, the quarterback pushes the ball forward, therefore if it's dropped, it's ruled an incomplete pass. Very low risk, very easy way to get the ball in the hands of your best players. So that was very, very smart. And I forget, um, I think maybe had I had someone on – the athletic a mailbag or someone called into my radio show and was asking about the possibility that was really smart. I think of Sark to do that. Okay. Uh, another play was a wide receiver screen. Again, very low risk for the quarterback, very easy throw. And you're not asking him to read a defense. You're not asking him to do anything other than it's okay. The ball's going to this player. That's all you got to do. Take one step plant, Throw the ball as hard as you can out there. Make an accurate throw. Boom. Another play was uh, a pass in the left flat to tight end Miller Forrestal. Again, so if you start adding these up, so you got five runs, you got a couple of jet sweeps, you got a wide receiver screen, you got a pass in the left flat. That's nine of the 14 plays right there. So I like the way that Sark didn't ask Mac Jones to go out and win the game on the first drive. Let's ease him into this thing. Let's get him comfortable. Let's get him feeling good about himself. Let's get the offense moving. Now, the the drive resulted in a field goal. He didn't put seven on the board, but that's fine. You go down first drive, you get points. That's fine. And then you started to see Alabama take over. And, and Mac... Jones on the day was incredibly efficient, 
He only had four incompletions. He was 18 of 22. Again, we didn't ask him to go out and throw the ball 40 times. He didn't need to. I mean, didn't need that sort of game from Mac. 18 of 22, 235 yards, three touchdowns, and most importantly, zero interceptions. Um, at halftime, guys, it's 41 zip ball game over. They got Alabama got another touchdown in the third quarter, and then of course Arkansas got that penalty aided touchdown drive in the fourth, and that was all of your scoring on the day. Najee Harris had a nice day. Um, nearly 100 yards rushing. They pulled him. He had a bit of a sprained ankle. He could have gone back in the game. Jerry Judy had another 100-yard receiving game. But just like we see with Tua, look at how many different receivers get involved. Jerry Judy with seven catches. Jalen Waddle with five. Devontae Smith, four. Henry Ruggs with four. They're spreading the football out. Okay? And so that's a that's something that we see with Tua a lot. And it was nice to see that, that Mac had that continuation as well. Now, Devontae Smith, you might have spotted during the broadcast uh, on ESPN. Came to the sideline. He was back out in street clothes during the game. And he had ice and uh, sort of ice pack and a sling on his shoulder. Uh, Nick Saban was asked about it after the game. He said he's dealing with a shoulder sprain. Uh, they're going to give him a couple days off this week, and he should be good to go. So, um, a couple skill position players there outside of Tua Tonga-Valoa, Najee Harris with a twisted ankle. You got Jerry Judy with a banged-up shoulder. That's something we're going to keep a, keep an eye on as this week goes along, and then they start preparing for LSU at the end of the week. They're going to they're gonna start game prepping for LSU on Thursday. Nick Saban doesn't want to uh, mentally fatigue these guys by having them practice over and over and over against one opponent. He, he finds that they get burnt out really quickly on that. And so he wants these guys to sort of peak heading into that LSU game in terms of their preparation for LSU. But uh, what, what did you guys think of Mac? I mean, a very easy game plan. And then they uh, – I think he showed off a pretty good arm. There were a couple throws that – that ball had a little bit of snap on it. And then he throws, obviously, the long touchdown pass uh, to Jerry Judy, the 40-yarder. That, that, that had a little arc on it. It was well thrown, easy touchdown pass. So – all in all, I'd say a, a, a pretty pretty stellar debut for for Mac Jones. But let me also issue this caveat. Um, Arkansas is terrible. And, and I say that I don't like um, – my, my personal style is I don't want to be over the top in my criticism of student-athletes who are going to school – who are trying their hardest. Um, I'm just not going to go out and crush a, a kid unless unless they just do something stupid where, you know, they, they're opening themselves up to criticism. If a guy's trying his hardest and he's playing and maybe doesn't play that well, makes a mistake here or there, I'm not I'm not going to crush that kid. It's just it's just not my style. Uh, others are free to do so, but I also can't ignore the what was staring me on the face, staring me in the face on on Saturday night, and that's the fact that Arkansas is not a good football team. I mean, they're bad. I'm, I'm just trying to remember during the time that I've been covering Alabama, which is basically the entire Nick Saban era, if there was another Power 5 team that Alabama's played that's been worse than Arkansas, um, just in terms of talent level, scheme, what they're trying to accomplish, um, the injury situation going into the game. I don't know. Maybe maybe Duke 2010 
But that one doesn't even jump off the page to me like this one. Now, Alabama has beaten teams really bad before. So that's that's not really the litmus test here. The litmus test is talent, how beat up they are going to the game, and then just scheme-wise, what are they trying to accomplish? I don't know. Um, I like to, to give every man a, an opportunity to succeed, but Chad Morris has got to get that thing turned around because that uh, I just wasn't very good. And they are not a good football team, and there's not a lot of room for optimism. Alabama was up 41 to nothing at halftime with a backup quarterback. I mean, Alabama could have named their score in the second half. Nick Saban took the, the foot off the gas, and they, they only played Mack one more series. He played the first series of the third quarter, then they pulled him, put in Talia Tongavaloa, the younger brother of Tua. And But even with, with Talia playing basically two full quarters or – you know, at least a, a quarter and a third, or a quarter and three fourths. He only threw the ball, I believe, eight times. So, I mean, they weren't trying to embarrass Arkansas, but um, that thing, that rebuild, is maybe a little further behind than I thought because that was uh, that was not good. And um, there's a reason I, I see very clearly now why Arkansas has lost that many SEC games in a row. And I don't know if it, I don't know if another win's coming this season in terms of the SEC. Um, that, that, that would be, that would be hard pressed, but obviously the big news as we're, as, as it's been since last week, it will be this week and it will be into next week. And it will be the prevailing storyline for this game of the century. Part two is, is where is Tua Tongavaloa in his health? Where is he in terms of his rehab? Where is he in terms of how far away he is now Nick Saban has given a couple of different uh sort of in uh sort of updates on Tua uh the first came last week um talking about uh talking he was on the uh Golik and Wingo show on ESPN and, and he came out and and basically said listen um Tua's making progress uh, we think that this injury is not as bad as it was last year now, of course, I'll remind you guys, it's a different angle, uh, a different ankle, and every injury is different. So um, let's not make comparisons too too closely to last year. But in terms of the severity, uh, last year's injury to, to, to a tongue of a low was worse. That doesn't mean that this year's is not serious or that it's not bad. It was serious enough to to operate on, to have surgery on, and in Alabama's medical staff are, are very ethical people. They're not going to have surgery on you just to have it. So that tells you um, the severity of the injury is, is not good. You don't have surgery when you're fine or even when you're a little dinged up. This was, um, this was sort of a, a bad injury, but it's not as bad as last year. So that's what Nick Saban said last week now after the game he's sort of detailing all of the injuries that Alabama had in the game versus Arkansas um I mentioned to you previously Najee Harris I told you about Devontae Smith um starting left guard uh Evan Neal had sort of a, a groin strain and, and they pulled him and didn't put him back in the game Landon Dickerson was dealing with the, with a little uh little injury and they pulled him uh, Ale Keho has a fractured hand and you know, so there's, there's a little bit of injuries here and there, but when he gets to dealing with all the injuries from that game, he, he sort of throws out there and two is doing really, really well in his, in his progress. So 
Alabama fans hear that and, and sort of get, I mean, that's a very, that's very good news, right? You're very optimistic when, when you're not, when your head coach is not asked a question about Tua and he sort of throws out there that he's doing fine, that he's, he's actually on the, the anti-gravity treadmill. I think it's called alter G that he's already progressed in his rehab from that, which is telling you, okay, he's moved beyond the non weight bearing. Now it's not full weight, but when you're on the, the alter G uh, treadmill, you're, you're running. Um, so you are able to put some weight on it. So you're not non weight bearing anymore, which is the first step. Now he's probably in a, in a walking boot. And then the next step is, is actually getting him on the field, testing that ankle in terms of his drop back, um, some minor movement. Of course, he will have a strength test before any of that happens. So you're starting to see some progress. So there's, there's reason why Alabama fans would be sort of uh, excited about that update from their head coach Saturday night. Today, Nick Saban, um, because it's a bye week, he did not have his normal Monday press conference, but he he does speak during the bye week every week, or every year rather, to the Birmingham Quarterback Club. It's just uh, during the bye week on a Monday, that's sort of what Nick Saban does. Um, he, he's done it every year he's been at Alabama, and he did it this year. But before he goes in there to talk to that private quarterback club, he meets with the media and sort of a little media scrum and he was asked if he felt optimistic about Tua Tungvaluwa's chances of playing versus LSU. And he, he basically, he went a little, like a, a tiny, tiny rant about, he doesn't answer hypothetical questions and he doesn't know. And here's what I've, here's what I've maintained from, from the very beginning. I have seen Twitter accounts that have never stepped foot in the University of Alabama football complex tweet about to his ankle. I have seen stories in different and multiple media outlets, one in Louisiana, one in the state of Alabama, probably more that I haven't even seen, where they're asking medical professionals to, to speculate about Tua Tongvaloa's availability in a game on November 9th. And I've always maintained that it's sort of a fool's errand to even attempt to answer that question because guess what? You can have MD behind your name all day long. You could have gone to the world's best medical school. But guess what? You don't know. Period. Flat out. You don't know. I don't care how fancy your education is. I don't care where you did your fellowship. I don't care because you don't know. And you know why you don't know? Because you haven't seen the MRI. Because you haven't seen the x-rays. Because you didn't do the surgery. So you don't know. So all the medical experts who are trying to speculate, that's all it is. It's speculation because here's the simple fact. Tua doesn't know if he can play. Nick Saban doesn't know if he can play. The surgeon who performed the operation doesn't know if he can play. The Alabama medical staff, the training staff, none of them knows if he can play as we sit here on October 28th, 2019. They don't know. So why would a doctor in San Diego know? Why would a doctor who's never examined Tua Tonga-Valoa, how would they know? All it is is speculation. They don't know. They haven't diagnosed the young man. They haven't seen his medical chart. They haven't seen his MRI. They haven't seen his x-rays. So they don't know. That's my little mini rant because I'm just dealing with people 
that don't know. And all they're doing is speculating. And I told you this was coming. The podcast last week, I told you this was coming. I said, prepare yourself for take after take after a take about whether this kid's going to play or not. And, and they don't know, and no one else does right now either. He hasn't been out on a football field. So the fact that these people can read the future, that's amazing. They can make a heck of a lot more money with that than they can with their medical degree if they can accurately predict the future. I've maintained all along that I think Tua Tungvalu will play in this game, but I don't know. That's my guess. Now, it's a it's an somewhat educated guess after talking to some people, but right now we don't know. We don't know how his body's going to respond when he gets out there that first day. How sore is that ankle? How tight is that ankle? How much progress can be made? How much can he move on it? How much can he cut on it? How much can – all of that. I say all that to say when, when you ask Nick Saban about whether he's optimistic – uh, or or not whether two is going to play. Nick Saban could have said, we, we hope to have him out there, but Nick Saban used that opportunity to say, we don't know. Now, I would also say that, and I'm not faulting Nick for this, but I would also say Nick Saban has sort of set an expectation for positive news on Tua because he's given two very positive updates since the injury occurred. Very public positive updates. One on a, on a nationally syndicated radio show, that airs in a lot of markets and once after the game on Saturday night in which no one asked about Tua. He sort of he sort of went there unsolicited. So Nick Saban um, getting asked about Tua today and, and whether he'd be there is, is sort of the expectation he set after two very positive reviews. But he also, he, he give him credit, he used it to shut it down. He used that question to say, hey, I don't know. I don't deal in hypotheticals. We don't know if he's going to be able to play. He hadn't been out on the field, which is what I've been saying. So any anytime that anytime between now and November 9th that you read an article and it says it's very unlikely he could be back before November 9th, or it's very likely that he could, just ask yourself, how do they know? How does this sports doc Twitter guy in San Diego who's never examined to it, who doesn't know, by the way, I love how everyone just assumes that they know the extent of the injury. Are you sure you got the correct diagnosis? I'll just leave that out there. Because I don't think the exact injury is what everyone thinks it is. So all you're going on is a uh, what you saw in the broadcast and what everyone else is saying that it is. I'm not saying it's vastly different than what's being reported. But you haven't seen the x-rays. You haven't seen the MRI. So pardon me while I ignore you when you tell the world what you think is going to happen with Tua Tungvaloa's ankle in, t- in, in regards to him playing against LSU. Pardon me if I just ignore that. And you should too. We don't know. Period. Okay. I got a little heated there. Before we move on, let's hear from our NFL expert, Dave Damashek about his podcast here on The Athletic, Football Fact Check. Hi and hello, Dave Damashek here. Quick question, do you like football? Good, then you're going to like Football Fact Check as we dig in with a free show every Monday open to the entire world and for subscribers only on Wednesday, all the NFL game picks for the coming week. Make sure you check it out, Football Fact Check, including some of our colleagues here at The Athletic and uh, our good cast of fellas here chopping it up, hooey and applesauce, pro football, let's talk about it. Football fact check. Another positive from Saturday night's game is a continuation of what we've seen really now for the last, oh, I don't know, probably three weeks 
um, in, in that we have seen Alabama's defense really soar. Or, let me say this. Because the, the Texas, Texas A&M game was not great in terms of what the defense allowed. But it, it was really the first game that we saw Terrell Lewis look like the guy we thought he was going to look like. Now, Alabama still gave up nearly 400 yards in that game. They gave up 5.56 yards per play um, and, and all that. So so maybe it's not back to, to three weeks. Maybe it's just the last two. But that was the first game, really, the Aggies, where Terrell Lewis sort of announced, okay, this is what I'm capable of. And then, and then what I wanted to see is I wanted to see you build on that. Okay. All right, big man. All right, 2-4. I see you. I see you go out there and get two sacks. Back it up. And he did. The next week, he goes out against Tennessee. Another two sacks. He backed it up. All right, 2-4. You got a little consistency going. I'm, you're making me a little bit of a believer. You're making me out to be smarter than I really am because I, I said I thought this is, the, this is the real you that you were going to show us all year. You're finally healthy. You're able to practice. Go ahead, big man. I like what I'm seeing. Do it again. And he goes out against Arkansas. He didn't light up the, the, stat, the, the stat sheets in terms of sacks, but he did everything else. He got six quarterback hurries. He got a pass breakup. He, he's, he is the reason. Listen, I know Trayvon Diggs got the interception return for a touchdown. That didn't happen without 2-4. Two 2-4 four. Two four wore out that right tackle all night. With power, with speed, with agility, with length, he wore that poor kid out. Six quarterback hurries in a game. And that touchdown, might as well go ahead and give that to Trayvon Diggs because he put a spin move on that right tackle and put a hit on the quarterback that forced the ball to get out early. Trayvon Diggs, pick six. Go back and, and if, you, if you've uh, read my subtle thoughts from this week, which, which was published this morning, uh, I, I, I linked a video on another play on the goal line of Arkansas coming off its own goal line in which Terrell Lewis just straight – bull rushes this right tackle and and then just sheds him and basically uh that's where he got his pass breakup um so or i don't maybe it's more than the pass breakup but he forced an early throw that went nowhere i mean he he was disruptive and if that's the guy you're going to get going forward that's a positive sign for this alabama defense that's a positive sign with one of the most dangerous passing attacks in the country coming to your house on november 9th and so I asked this. It's really been three games that we've seen this from Terrell Lewis, but in terms of production on defense, in terms of lowering what you're allowing in, uh, on yards per game, on yards per play, the last two weeks they've, they've really hit some benchmarks. So against Tennessee, Tennessee only runs 61 plays. Tennessee gets 231 yards of total offense. They get 3.79 yards per play. You can live with that. You can win with that. Against Arkansas, the totals were even better. 56 plays. 213 yards of total offense. 3.8 yards per play. But but I, I just got through telling you that Arkansas is horrible. Tennessee has struggled. Although Tennessee had its best performance of the year in a nice win over South Carolina on Saturday. So I'm kind of left here wrestling with the fact of how big do we make this, this progression of the Alabama defense the last two weeks? 
when they really hadn't played anybody. They played Tennessee. They played Arkansas. Arkansas is horrible. I don't think Tennessee is horrible. But Tennessee has not been good. You could say labeled Tennessee bad. We'll see where they go from here after that win over the Gamecocks. But, but when you look at it, Alabama did well against Duke. Duke only got 204 yards of total offense. Alabama did a good job against New Mexico State. But in the other SEC games they played, South Carolina got 459. Ole Miss got 476. A&M got 389. So I'm sort of wrestling with the fact of, is this a, is this a stepping stone? Is this a, a defense that seemingly may have found something and is turning a corner? Or are Tennessee and Arkansas just that bad? I tend to think I'm not going to put much stock in the Arkansas performance. I'm more impressed with what they did against Tennessee. 231 and, and 3.79 yards per play. Pretty solid because Tennessee's got a decent offensive line. They do. I just don't know what to make of it. And I'm not going to make any I'm not going to make any big proclamations that Alabama's defense has found itself that okay, this is yes, they've gotten better. And I and I you know, after the, the sixth game of the season, I sort of came on here and, and I wrote that it's sort of uh, unrealistic to take to expect this team, which at the time had played half of its regular season, to make any huge progress. I said I thought the progress could be incremental. And then the first step I thought in taking that is you needed more from Tara Lewis and Raekwon Davis. Th- those guys had to give you a pass rush. And Tara Lewis has answered the bell. Because in game seven, eight, nine, he's got four sacks. He's got a ton of quarterback hurries. He is making his presence felt. That dude has answered the bell. And so it's like the rising tide lifts all boats. He can make this defense better, but he can't get it there by himself. He, he can't do it by himself. He needs more consistent linebacker play. He needs better schemes. Listen, Pete Golding knows more football than I do every day of the week and twice on Sundays. And he always will. He, you don't get to be the coordinator. Uh, you don't get to coordinate defense at Alabama by not knowing football. Incredibly bright mind. And I'm sure there's a reason they're having him do it. But please, someone explain to me why Anthony Jennings, the Jack linebacker, is in pass coverage. We saw it multiple times against Arkansas. You don't think that Joe Brady, the passing game coordinator at LSU, is licking his chops at that? If they're going to drop Anthony Jennings into coverage, be it against a tight end or a running back or whoever, that's a mismatch. And I love Anthony Jennings. I've told you from jump to start his senior season, he's most one of the most underrated linebackers in the conference. But he ain't, he ain't that dude that, that can cover. That's not the strength of his game. Furthermore, why are you using one of your two best pass rushers on the team in pass coverage? There's got to be a reason for it. If they continue to do it, LSU is going to abuse that all night. Now, I don't. I get the sense that there was a reason for it against Arkansas, but, but you got to stop it. You, you can't keep doing that. It's a mismatch play. And in a game like LSU... I don't need you to remind you what happened in 2011. Every play, when, when teams are this closely matched, every play is magnified. One, one decision like that can be the difference in winning and losing. So, uh, again, 
he knows way more football than me. He must have a reason for it, but I don't see it. And furthermore, you can't use one of your two best pass rushers in pass coverage. Because what has Terrell Lewis said about one of the reasons for his, for his emergence as a pass rusher the last three games? Part of it is he's been able to be healthy enough to practice all week. And secondly, and this is straight from Terrell Lewis's mouth, when he's in the game at the same time as Anthony Jennings, offensive lines can't shift coverage, can't slide protection his way because Anthony is, is a good pass rusher too. You got to have those two guys because you're not really getting it from anyone else. Those are your two pass rushers. And pass rush, you know, and the pass rush is not the strength of Anthony Jennings' game. Setting the edge, being a tough, tough football player and great against the run is the strength of Anthony Jennings. We, as I mentioned before, we got plenty of time to touch on LSU, but games that, that certainly shaped the college football playoff, um, none was bigger than Oklahoma going down to Kansas State. Now Oklahoma rallied late, and we thought maybe Jalen Hurts would be able to rescue them, but um, they do not get the call on the onside kick. Kansas State escapes with a huge victory. Um, Michigan shows up. They, they beat Notre Dame. Not just beat them. They beat them down. Penn State just absolutely whips Michigan State. So suddenly, the, you know, now we've seen three straight weeks where a top 10 team has gone down, right? Uh, a couple weeks ago, it was, it was Georgia, then Wisconsin, and now we see Oklahoma. Which leads me to this. Just, just put this in the back of your mind and think about it. You're, the more of these teams that go down, there, the more chance there is that the SEC gets two in. Now, when you think about it and you look at it, the SEC right now I believe has four of the top eight teams in the country. LSU's number one, Alabama's number two. I believe Florida's number six, Georgia's number eight. Well, Alabama's next game is against two, LSU. So one of those teams gets, a, gets an L right there. Well, guess who plays this weekend? Florida and Georgia. If Florida loses... Um, the loser of that game's done. There's not going to be a, a, a two lead, a, a two loss team from the SEC getting in this year. So, but that would put that would still leave the possibility that whoever loses this Alabama LSU game, if they go on and handle their business the rest of the season, that they could get in. So, a lot of football to be played. But but be thinking of that. Is this a season where the SEC might get two in? I mean, Oregon got a big win on a last-second field goal over over Washington State, a game they almost choked away and lost. There's Penn State, but Penn State's going to play Ohio State, so the, one of those two teams gonna, gets a loss. So there's a lot of shuffling going on, and some of these teams are going to going to eliminate themselves or someone else in the next three or four weeks. But the stage is set um, for the SEC, depending on how things shake out. Listen, if LSU loses to Alabama, and they run the table the West rest of the way, and they get they get obviously they don't win the West, they can't go to the SEC championship game. And then Alabama wins the SEC. There's a very strong case that can be made that LSU is a college football playoff team with wins over Auburn and Florida and Texas. Now that that Texas win is looking less impressive by the week because that you know losing to TCU certainly didn't didn't help LSU's case there with in, in regards to that. Texas, Texas losing to TSU, that that win looks weaker and weaker. So, I don't know. This big picture, start to think about that stuff. And and this weekend's game, Georgia, Florida, 
is 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 a, it's an elimination game for one of those teams. And and don't forget that Auburn can play spoiler too. Auburn's still got uh, Georgia and Alabama in Jordan Hare Stadium. So um, there's a lot that can happen before now in the end of the season. Thanks for joining me on the Monday edition of Second in 26. I will see you again on Friday.